I invite you to take a deep breath and really be present in this room and in this moment. And as we breathe together, we remember the truth that there is only one life. That life is the divine itself, pouring itself into every particle, into every atom and into all creation, evolving. And I know that we too are evolving. We're evolving in our thinking. We're evolving in our capacity to love and to have compassion. We're evolving in our capacity to remember whose we are. And so this Father's Day, we also remember that we all have a father. And sometimes we are fathered by someone who is not our biological father. And for all of the fathering that has happened to us in our lives, the mentoring, the teaching, the role modeling, the loving, for all of this, I hold great gratitude in my heart. And I send that gratitude out to all fathers everywhere. Join me in knowing the truth that we are loved and we are here now. And so it is. It's a real pleasure to be here. Dr. Patrick is celebrating his son's graduation from environmental sciences in California. And he and Laura have gone down there for the week. And, uh, you know, if you're a parent and your child has graduated from anything, we know how wonderfully satisfying that is. <laughs> because when you're in that gap of not knowing if it's ever going to happen and if they will actually ever find something that they love or want to do, we know that a graduation is just a wonderful gift. And so we send Reverend Patrick or Dr. Patrick our blessing and we are joyful with him, as I know he's very joyful about this. We have been learning about meditation and I have been on a great trip where in fact I learned a great deal about meditation and meditation in a way that I had never heard of actually before and in a country that had such a different culture and such a different style and such a different energy than our country in Canada that I decided that I'm going to talk about meditation and especially the meditation that I was exposed to and learned about and am now practicing from Tibet. We had wonderful guides everywhere we went through Southeast Asia and we started in Luang Prabang which is in Laos we were right beside a Buddhist monastery, which they call a Wat. And we could hear the monks in the morning hitting the big drum at 4 a.m. We were, it was a fence between us. We heard a call to prayer, to meditation. Actually, I think they first do. They do about an hour of meditation, we were told. And then they have some teaching from the head monk. And then they go out very sedately and serenely, very present, very open and filled with gratitude as they walk through their neighborhood and all the people come out. The people have been out from the countryside bringing things to the market, fresh food to the market. The markets are set up, not right where the monks are, but the monks walk along and people bring this fresh produce. We were told to kneel, 
to be very present and silent, not to look at the monks, but as we gave food to actually fill it in our mind's eye with love and kindness and as a blessing. It's not really quiet out because there are some tourists. We were in a low season, so there wasn't a lot of tourists, but there is a certain hum, but people are not just talking. There is an intention of sacredness and an intention of honor as these young men, and they're mostly young men. Often these boys are about even six to eight years old, and they were on a, a, a school break, so they were doing about a month of study in the monastery, which they call their ordination, and families are very proud to have their son go and study in the monastery. For children that are, are in my picture, there's children with little boxes, and, and the monks give the children some of the extra food or some food, and the children can take that box back to the monastery. And it's kind of like a social program to help the poor and kids that maybe families that are struggling a bit for food. It was a really beautiful morning practice. You know how in a hot country, when you get up early in the morning, the temperature is perfect, and this was just a absolutely serene meditative experience that we learned to love. The meditation practice I'm talking about, though, is from our time in Tibet. And as you know, that the Tibet is really under, I, would, I will say the word, they're kind of under occupation. They've been claimed back by the Chinese uh, country of China. And the, the Tibetan people, beautiful people, are, are um, certainly very compassionate and forgiving, but they're also very much feeling that they're under house arrest. One of the things that the monks told us was that, well, we're really safe here in Tibet because we've got about four security guards assigned to each one of us. There's that many Chinese soldiers. And the Chinese soldiers are beautiful young people, men and women that carry guns and have big trucks and things like that. But, you know, you can just feel, if you weren't involved in this emotionally, we could certainly feel there's somebody's kid here working in the military in Tibet, in a country where it's very clear they're not really welcomed by the Tibet people. The mantra that we learned when we were there was a mantra that's been said everywhere, and we were picked up from the airport in Lhasa. Right away, our, our Buddhist guide talked to us about this mantra and asked if we knew it. And no, we didn't know really the mantra. I'd heard it, but I was, it wasn't a mantra that I've used. Om Mani Padme Om. And everyone says it. They're all wearing prayer beads and bracelets. It's on the jewelry. It's on rocks. It's absolutely everywhere. And so I wondered, you know, these monks are great because you could ask them anything. I asked them, you know, why? What's the history of it? And they said, well, really it comes from, even before the Buddhist time, there was a, a, a monk, maybe he wasn't called a monk, but he was in the high Himalayan mountains. He spent years and years and years, and he came to a place of enlightenment, and he could move into nirvana. And he chose not to go, but to stay out of deep compassion for all of life. And so his, he's still here spiritually, and the Dalai Lama is a reincarnation of that Bodhisattva Buddha of compassion. That's the teaching. And so when you say Om Mani Padme Om, you are actually condensing all of the teachings of the Buddha, and you're also extending this spiritual energy of compassion to yourself and to all beings. There are six practices that it really captures. So the Buddha, or the Dalai Lama says that it, it, he gives a very long and complex description of what this mantra really is all about. And it's really about the six teachings that are of purification in the Buddhist 
scripture. So the first, Om, is the teaching of generosity. So to purify yourself and so you are a generous person. Ma is your ethics and truthfulness. Ni is patience, so Om Ni. Pad is zeal or perseverance. Mi is meditation, and people meditate for clarity and insight. And Hum is wisdom. But I read that you can't move from generosity to absolute wisdom unless you open your heart to compassion. It'll just stay at a lot of intellectual knowledge and not really transform into deep wisdom, which has got an experiential loving-kindness piece to it. So I'm going to talk a little bit, and the pictures are going to show you about Lhasa. Uh, we went to Lhasa, and we went to the Jangon Temple, which is a very ancient temple. I think it first sort of started being built in 472. Think of that, 472. Hmm. Jesus lived maybe 2,000 years ago. The Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. But this temple is built in like almost 500. Seems impossible. And people started walking around Barkor Square, which is around this temple and through the streets, at around 600. And that practice has been going on ever since. And Om Mani Padi Om came with the Buddhist teaching. So at about that 450... It maybe came even a little before that, but that teaching kind of came along with it. And so people have been writing it on rocks, and it's on pretty much the jewelry that you buy. It's just everywhere. And it's, as, it's there as a vibration of compassion. So people sit and, uh, on the benches after they've done the walk around the square, and, and there's um, lots and lots of people with prayer beads. So we bought ourselves some prayer beads, and we started using this mantra. So you say the mantra, Omni. Om Mani Padme Om, and you move the bead once. So Om Mani Padme Om, Om Mani Padme Om. You go around your whole prayer bead, and it's a hundred beads. There's eight extra beads, so that if you somehow lose your place and forget yourself, you're for sure going to do your hundred mantras. People try to do about a thousand of those in a day, and if the older people know that the younger people are busy, so they do a few extra to cover for their kids that maybe aren't able to walk that square as often as they are. They don't use uh, candle wax, they use yak butter, in, and the temples are filled with yak butter, and there's these thick wicks that sit, float kind of in, in the yak butter. I love the smell, I'm a farm girl, my husband not so much. Um, there's women that are walking together, mothers and daughters and babies on their back and uh, older kids kind of wrapped up with a scarf so that, that they'll come along. Kids are happy. There was no crying kids. It just seemed like the energy on that square just held us all up. And there was this wonderful feeling of just joy, but not happiness. I'm not talking about happiness. There was a, a, sort of a reverent, quiet, solid, centered joyfulness in that square as hundreds of people walked in from all over the place. There, there wasn't as many tourists. We were just kind of in a low season when we went, but apparently in the summer, there is like just thousands of people walking this square, and it just has this wonderful energy. These women that uh, came up to us said to us, um, you too, where are you from? And so we said, oh, they like Canada. Everybody in Southeast Asia loves Canada. We still have a good reputation over there. And uh, they said, you look so fresh and awake. So that's what's my talk. That's why I named my talk. You look so fresh and awake. And they'd say that to several people would say that to us. You two look so fresh. It's not you. We didn't say that to each other, would we? You look so fresh. But what they really meant was that we looked oxygenated, because the altitude is really high and lots of 
people from our culture look a little blue <laughs> and a little tired and are a little breathless because a lot of people suffer from altitude sickness in Lhasa. It's very, very high. But we come from Alberta and we've been to the mountains and we are, it's cold here. And I just think, you know what, we're a snow kind of covered country too. So I think there was an affinity at a cellular level. That's my story anyway. Then, and people saw that about us. And we were, we were alive and we were present and we were centered and we were joyful and we loved Tibet. We took a trip from Lhasa to Mount Everest and we loved every step of that journey up the high mountains and the altitude was phenomenal and we could feel it. And you know, they have these interesting washrooms and things like that that you climb up the stairs and sometimes we both felt the building was kind of moving, <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> so the one thing I'd like to talk to you about a little bit is the prayer wheel. There are just hundreds of prayer wheels in Tibet. And we were wondering, like, where did this all start? And there is a mythology about where it started. It could be the truth, but I'm not telling you it's the truth. There was a teacher who had two disciples. They both undertook to perform 100 million recitations of Om Mani Padme Om. And they made a commitment to their Lama to do it. So they took a vow and they went off to practice. One of the disciples was very diligent. You know some of those people that are so diligent. He set out to practice quickly and he recited the mantra incessantly day and night. After long effort, he completed 100 million recitations in three years. The other disciple was intelligent, though perhaps not known for his diligence. He did not launch into the practice with the same enthusiasm, but he saw that his friend was approaching the 100 million recitations of the mantra, and we can imagine how that felt. And so that second disciple, who had not repeated very many mantras, went up to the top of a hill. He sat down and began to meditate. He meditated that all beings throughout the universe were transformed into the Buddha of compassion. He meditated that the sound of the mantra was not only issuing from the mouths of all the Buddhas, so all of us transformed to Buddha saying this mantra, but that the very atoms in the universe vibrated with it. And that the sound of the mantra was issuing from all of them. He did this for a few days and he repeated the mantra himself in a state of divine consciousness. When the two disciples went back to their teacher to indicate they'd finished the practice, he said, you have done excellently. To the one, he said, you were very diligent. And to the second, he said, you were very wise. You both accomplished a hundred million recitations of the mantra. So this is why they use the prayer wheel, because inside the prayer wheel there's a roll of paper, and sometimes it's wrapped in a soft cloth, and there's probably a hundred million mantras written in that little roll. And so the top of it spins, and they turn the handle, the top spins around, it's got Om Mani Padme Om on the outside, but inside it's got all these mantras. And so the vibration goes out into their community, out into their country, out into the world, and they're offering the mantra of compassion for all of us all the time as they're walking around. So not only is it on their little prayer wheel, and some of the big prayer wheels, you can see the guy with the strap on that's he it's so heavy he can't hold it up. So they walk around three times with this, 
in the morning and probably and three times in the afternoon. Although, you know, as I'm saying, some of them are doing the work for others as well. Then at the temples throughout Tibet, they've got these great big lines of prayer wheels and in that is mantra, but also is Buddhist scripture. And on the outside of those big wheels is Om Mani Padme Om. So we walk down this whole line of mantra prayer wheels spinning and then they spin. So those two are sending out the vibration to all the atoms of the universe and it's, the, it's a vibration of compassion. So you think about how long they've been doing this. They know in Chinese writing that there is talk of a prayer wheel in 400, the year 400. And so it's been going on before 400. It's, I, I just thought it was amazing and very powerful. And I would, it's intellectually interesting, but I would say at a cell level in my own body, I actually felt it. I, I, you know, I, it's not really explainable by the intellect, is it? But the energy of the place was just different. It really was a different energy. And that whole area we were in between Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar, they're all Buddhist countries. But Tibet, honestly, was just a, a vibration of its own. Beautiful air and a beautiful country and beautiful people. And you couldn't help but love their clothes. They're just so different and so colorful and gorgeous. So the last little piece of this square I'll talk about is that the pilgrims going around doing the Kora meditation. And the Kora meditation, although it is walking the square, is Kora, but the, the Kora that they use is people that have got these wood pads on their hands, padding on their knees, and sometimes a padding right on their chest. And they start like this, Om Mani Padme Om, and then they get right down on the floor and lay straight out, and then they come back up, and then they, they walk to where their fingertips have been, and then they do it again. And they do this from like way far away, coming around the mountains, all the way to Lhasa, and then they, when they get to Lhasa, they are doing it there three times, and then they do, uh, then they do prayer and blessing at, at outside of the temple. Some people were fairly young, they all were fit, but they did it like probably a yoga master, it just fluid. It, it just, for me, I just the thought of it was just so hard to get back up again. And some of them were like my age. That would, they didn't do the, the long one, people my age, but they would do it in front of the temple just over and over again. And just like magic, they could stand right back. I mean, to me, it looked like magic. They could just stand right back up. So it's a great fitness training if you're looking for a mantra and, you know, an exercise that's very sacred and very old and I think very meaningful. You could tell they were very serious as they did it and very centered and kind of oblivious to other people. They were so into the practice themselves. I love the fact of community. It really seemed that there was intergenerational grandmothers and mothers and granddaughters and young children. It's like four generations sometimes. There's a group of them that we stopped and talked to that was the mother and her two daughters and the baby on their back and just as friendly and lovely but they were from kind of far away and had come on a spiritual pilgrimage to Lhasa and were you know, just loving, loving the energy of it. The, the Buddhist guides throughout Asia talk to us about the three poisons and the three poisons are ignorance that we all have, um, hatred and anger and desire and said that really all of their spiritual practices and their work with the monks and their teaching is really about helping them transform this into compassion. So the end result that they're really looking for is to have a very loving, kind, compassionate monk. 
when you look at Om Mani Padme Om and break it down with the meaning, they start teaching from the very first, which is um, prosperity. Is that right? They start with the first one anyway. Oh, generosity. Generosity. They start with generosity and they teach sort of sequentially. And so they experientially are teaching that until they get to wisdom. But they say they actually can't get to wisdom. They can't get wisdom without compassion. That compassion is kind of the last thing. You have to give up all your judgments about what's right and what's wrong to really live in compassion, especially when your country, you know, is occupied by, you know, a foreign foreign group. I mean, you can't help but think that they're really practicing loving kindness and forgiveness. And they really talk about that, that they really, they know that their role is to rise above that and to transform that within them, that this too can be a gift to them spiritually. So I have a couple stories about each one of these poisons. The first one is ignorance, and it's a story that comes from Frances Peavy, an author. She is a community development human rights worker. She works with communities who have something going on in their community that they can't solve. And she, all she really does is help them to ask good questions until they find some way to deal with it that's, that feels in integrity and it feels like it's gonna make a difference. And sometimes it's a simple thing like, you know, that they'll all get together and come out and pick up garbage or they'll clean a river together. But she finds ways to help a community bond and actually do a practice together that raises the um, quality of life, I guess, in that community. But she said one day she was walking through Stanford University, a campus uh, in the US with a friend. She saw a group of people standing on a high hill and she just went over to see what they were doing and she noticed that there was some scientists there from the Stanford, but there was also a group of media people with video cameras, and there was two chimpanzees. One was a male running loose, and the female was tethered on a 20-foot long chain. The male, she heard, was from a neighboring African wildlife center, but the female was being used in a study in Stanford. The spectators were scientists, and so She said as she watched, what she watched was the chimpanzees, the scientists were trying to get the chimpanzees to mate. The male was eager. You know how they can be. She grunted and grabbed, he grunted and grabbed the male, female's chain and she tugged and whimpered and backed away. Watching the female's face, she said, I began to feel sympathy for her. Suddenly, she yanked the chain out of the male's hand and walked through the crowd straight over to me and took my hand, she writes. The little chimp had recognized me and taking my hand, recognized me as a woman, not that she knew her. Taking my hand, she led me across the circle to three other women. And then she joined hands with us in a circle. I remember feeling that rough hand in mine and as she reached out across thousands of years of evolution and formed her own women's support group. (laughs) True story. So the movement, even in science, from wanting to learn something to getting wisdom about it, Jack Kornfield, a Buddhist monk, says, has to come through a compassionate heart, or it isn't wisdom, it's just knowledge. And that when we forget that life is not just a machine, but there is a spirituality woven in every thread of the universe, then we can create a heartless, uncompassionate culture and world. 
Einstein said this, our task must be to widen our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of, of nature in all its beauty. We are interconnected. To think that we are separate is an optical illusion. So the second poison is anger. And so purifying anger. Jack Cornfield is a person I've been listening to and seeing a lot on the internet. He's doing a whole series now on meditation, purification of the poisons. Just a very, he's just a wonderful guy. He went to train in, in uh, Thailand and in Myanmar as an, a monk and completed that and was ordained. And then he came back to the U.S., still felt he struggled with emotions, and then he did a Ph.D. in psychology. So he now combines those two things, his psychology and the great wisdom of his Buddhist practice. He was seeing a fellow, a young man, who was in the military and just starting basic training, and the military had sent him to Jack because Jack uh, does anger management with men. And so Jack taught him to meditate. He'd been meditating for about three weeks, and the young man went to the grocery store. We've all been to the grocery store right after work, and the line was long. There was a woman in front of him with one item, and he was mad about it, and he felt like telling her to get over there to that seven items or less aisle and not be in front of him, but he realized that he was being triggered by that, and so he kept his mouth shut, he moved forward, he saw that the clerk was pretty efficient. The woman in front of him was carrying a baby, but when she got to the till and paid for her one item, the clerk said, what a cute baby, and he said that the baby was, the baby was cute, but let's move. But the, the clerk leaned right over, and the baby seemed to just like her. And, and the, the woman smiled, and, and uh, the clerk said, could I hold her a minute? So she reached over and took the baby. And he said the baby was quite happy with her. He wasn't so happy. And, and, and he handed the baby back. And by this time, he's riled up. He gets to the clerk, and the clerk said, I know, I'm sorry. That, I, know, I know it took a little while, didn't it? But you know, my husband was killed in Afghanistan a year ago. And I have to work full-time now to look after me and the baby. And my mom, I'm so lucky, my mom looks after the baby every day, and every day she brings that child in to see me. And you know, I wait for it. It just means everything to me to be able to see my child. That did it. Jack said he got it. He realized, because he could identify, that he was missing so many opportunities because of his anger, and that that was one opportunity he didn't miss. And so he became very devoted to his meditation practice. And Jack, from that experience, has started now to counsel men coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and teaching them to meditate. And he said he knows that it works. And when they look at the brain science around this, they see that a brand new neurology happens in the brain when people meditate and when, when they come to that place of compassion, that it actually shuts down the signal back to the reptilian brain that triggers anger. And it acts like when something happens, this young guy, was it was like a car alarm. Someone shakes your car, the alarm is off instantly. That was his anger. Meditation helps to somehow tone down that signal. So you've got a little time to think and decide and see what's happening to you and stop the response. Purifying anger. So the, the, certainly with anger we can say, I didn't like it. 
It's not to say I liked it. The ability to say I didn't like what just happened, but it's not worth sounding the alarm. And I've been trying that myself. I would look after grandchildren, and there was a few things that bugged me, and I thought about sort of saying something a little mad, and I thought, hmm, I didn't like it, but it's not worth sounding the alarm. It's not worth hurting our relationship. And so I thought, oh, it is a good practice, and I'm a meditator, so I think, yes, in my meditation practice, I think I'm going to work a little more to purify that even further. The last is desire, the poison of desire. And that, the best I heard, was this week on CBC Morning Radio and John Gameshi. He had Rush. You know Rush? He started Jeff Dam Hip Hop, um, that whole studio of, of kind of promoting the hip hop crew. And he even went into a clothing line of the clothes, you know, those pants that kind of hang off the young guy's hips. Looks like they're going to fall down. That whole thing, and for babies too. And he's made, he's worth, I think, $340 million. Well, he's written a book. And he's a meditator. His book is called Success Through Stillness. He was a druggie. He was a gang drug guy in, on Queens, and he was arrested a couple of times. He never went to jail, but he said he was in a bad way. And he started meditating, and because it gave him, he said he realized he did drugs and was part of that crowd because he needed to numb out. He didn't want to feel what he was feeling. And he realized that through meditation, and he's been a meditator now for 19 years, very faithfully, and he teaches it, and he talks about it, and he writes about it, and it's, his book is excellent. And he really said that it replaced all that addiction stuff, and that it's made him so super sensitive about, he's, very, he's a vegetarian, so it's made him very sensitive about animal rights, it's made him very sensitive about eating, just being conscious of the food when we eat, it's made him conscious of his weight and his fitness. He said it's just made him a better person. He's more conscious of his values and what he believes. And he's more confident in actually being a person who meditates and is a being a person with loving compassion, no matter what's going on around him. And he hangs out with you know, quite an interesting crowd. He said, I promise you meditation has helped cleanse almost all of the judgment from my heart. And the real incredible thing that I've learned is that space doesn't just sit there empty. No, when you get rid of judgment, what actually replaces it is compassion. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the brain research that's going on around compassion, but Dr. Singer has been, is a social neurologist and she's been doing a lot of work. One of the research projects she's doing is with Dr. Matteau Ricard, and he doesn't call himself Dr. Matteau Ricard, but he's a PhD microbiologist and he's spent 30 years in the Himalayan mountains and he's a, a monk. When she was trying to see what the difference was between sympathy being sorry when, for someone else. Empathy, I feel your pain physically. And when they hook people up to electrodes, they, you do feel their pain. You actually have physical pain. Your brain registers it. It's the very same as a person that you are expressing empathy for. So if you are a person who works in emergency, if you're a nurse on the units, if you're a paramedic, if you're someone who works with post-traumatic stress, uh, if you're a person who's around people in pain and who are suffering and you're empathetic, you're going to burn out. You're going to be unhealthy. And they're finding that. The people are burning out in the helping professions. And why are they? Because they are compassionate people. Yes, they're empathetic people, but they're not compassionate people because compassion is held in a different part of the brain and it's expressed differently in your physiology. 
So this Buddhist monk that is the microbiologist has been meditating and doing his practice for 30 years in the Himalayan mountains. They hook him up, they show him the same thing that other people would feel empathy for and suffer. There is no suffering on his brain. It's from a different place he feels and it is, it's like this is the example that they use. It's like a mother who is so bonded to her child and her child is crying, but she's not distressed. She feels this great loving kindness and compassion with no anxiety. And that's what compassion is. And so she's working with people to train them to move from empathy into compassion so that they stay well. Om Mani Padme Om might be the mantra for them, mightn't it? But this Buddhist monk, that's, he uses that mantra. That's the country he's from, that's the mantra he uses, but he's also a very evolved and wise monk. So I think as I finish, I'd like to give you a chance to say the mantra. And so I've asked Bill if he would put it on. I found one on iTunes that is an, kind of similar to the one that the monks were saying and we were saying. And I've been saying it every morning as I do my prayer beads. I put this on. It's a six minute, but we're just going to do three. And I've been putting it on and playing it three times and just letting it run through. And honestly, I feel like my brain vibration here has changed. I can feel it here. So today, as we do this for three minutes, sit quietly and comfortably. And they always say, put your feet on the floor. Be centered. And as you take a few deep breaths, come to the place of your heart and feel loving compassion for yourself, kindness, that gentle love. And as we say the mantra, you might even think about the place at the, kind of at the front of your forehead, just kind of at the top there where compassion, the neur neurology of compassion lives and and the neurons can be built there. And you can move your compassion right up to that part of your head eventually. So you might want to feel compassion for yourself as you're doing the mantra. You might want to feel compassion for someone you love that you know is suffering or has some sorrows. You might even want to send compassion to Tibet and those beautiful people who have been sending compassion to us for over a thousand years. Oh, Mani, Pemme, 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 Oh, Mani,
secret, but arriving everywhere, the atmosphere is charged with longing and searching. The pilgrims and the mystery lovers know they're gathered now. The sound of the prayer, the chanting, drifts across the dawn. It's Muslim, Jew, Christian, all mingled, all religions and all teachings, all singing and chanting one song. The differences are just illusion and vanity. The sunlight looks a little different on this wall than it does on that. A lot different on this and on another, but it's still one light. We have borrowed these clothes this time and place from a light. And when we praise, we're pouring them back in. Silence is the language of the divine. All else is poor translation. Keep knocking. The joy inside will open a window. I always see the divine in you when we're together. Namaste.